This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My father, when I was 10, I was incredibly nervous because I hated going to the hospital with him. He would do rounds. I hated the hospital. Mm. I didn't like the lights. I don't like fluorescent lights. I didn't like the noise. I don't like the smells. Yep. I don't like the beeping. I don't like sick people. I don't like dirt. And I walk into his study, he has a little study at our house, and he would do his charts at the end of the day and, and do stuff, call his patients, back when you called patients on the phone. And I was very, very anxious. I said, Dad, I don't really want to be a doctor. And my dad looked at me and he said, Brad, you can be anything you want. And at 10, that was transformative mm. for me. The idea that you will ever have to take blood out of your system in a meaningful way to do a test uh, makes no sense to me, right? The idea that you'll have to count calories makes no sense to me. The idea that the separation between human and machine and the measurement system and the feedback loop will be merged together and it'll be in, in your physical sense. So Fitbit for us was human instrumentation version 0.1. Read a Benjamin Franklin biography. Read a John Adams biography. Uh, read a Thomas Jefferson biography. It'll calm you down about how f***ed up our current political system is. It really will. The center is the customer. They're the ones who are paying for everything. I just saw this as, oh my God, this is like my chance. Quarter of a million dollars, it was almost surreal. You can't just cut out one person in the supply chain in order to solve a problem. Those are the kind of people you want. You respect them, their integrity, their intelligence, their ability, their can-do attitude, hard work. All right, welcome to the third installment of the Fall 2016 UC Santa Barbara Distinguished Speaker Series. I'm John Greathouse, and you can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. We have tonight with us Brad Feld. Brad has been an early-stage investor and an entrepreneur since the late 80s. Along the way, he's founded companies, had successful exits, and he's founded three venture funds, or co-founded um, along the way. Of course, Foundry Group, which you guys all know and love, his current fund, before that, he was a co-founder of Mobius Venture Capital, and before that, Intensity Ventures. And I think what's significant about that is someone who has seen the venture and investment landscape over multiple decades, they just have a perspective that's priceless. They bring a perspective to their investments that you just can't get if you haven't lived through the good times and the bad times. So um, that's something that um, all of Brad's and all of his partners and portfolio companies are the beneficiaries of. Now, it's dangerous to start naming companies, um, someone like Brad who's invested for multiple decades. I am going to name a few, and they're mostly the more consumer-facing ones that you might have heard of. Um, of course, Zynga, Fitbit, FeedBurner, and then one that's nearest and dearest to my heart, Tracker. Some of you may know that Tracker was started by two gauchos who are here with us tonight, um, TMP students who sat in this classroom and listen to speakers like Brad, just like you guys. So I think you can draw a direct line about seven years ago. Two students that went into the new venture competition, won that competition, and decided they had so much conviction on their idea, with regard to their idea, that they continued on after graduation. Very scary thing to do when you're a young person and you're making that leap into the great unknown. And now they have Brad and a host of other um, stakeholders that are helping them uh, achieve success. So it's wonderful to see that. It's wonderful to see that connection go from this classroom right into the real world. 
So unlike the old school venture capitalist, Brad is a builder and an operator. And we're starting to see that more and more. In fact, we've seen it over the last 10 years or so. The old pattern was you would get an Ivy League education, you would go to Wall Street, you'd become an investment banker, and then if you wanted to be a venture capitalist, you would give some companies some money and you would sort of drop in on them every once in a while and tell them what to do. The new version of venture capitalist is somebody who's a builder, like Brad, someone who's an operator, someone who can actually come to board meetings and give hands-on practical advice that entrepreneurs can act upon, as opposed to feeling like they have a boss in the form of an investor. As you guys know, Brad's a nationally recognized speaker and author. He's written about 12 books. Uh, two of which I want to highlight. One of them is Venture Deals, which just came out in its third edition. I have turned on dozens and dozens of entrepreneurs to this book. It is the definitive book on raising institutional money. So even if you're getting it from an angel investor, a venture capitalist, uh, anyone, anyone who's writing you a check, essentially, you should read this book. Do yourself a favor. Um, Brad and his partner Jason did a great job of basically telling uh, the tips and tricks of the trade, of the venture capital trade, long overdue. And then Startup Opportunities, which is a recommended book in this class. I turn students on to Startup Opportunities all the time when they come to me and they say, you know, what do you think of my idea? I say, you know what? What I think of your idea is less important. Why don't you take a look at this book and it'll show you how to vet your idea. It'll show you how to determine whether that's an idea that's worth doing what the tracker folks did, making that big leap and going for it. Or maybe it's an idea you want to do part-time. Maybe it's an idea you don't want to explore. Um, so highly recommend Startup Opportunities. So you, know, you guys know I try to bring folks into this speaker series that are not just successful financially or professionally. I want, I want to bring model, role models in for you that, that, are, that are successful personally as well as professionally. Brad is no exception. Uh, his wonderful wife, Amy, have a, um, a long, um, healthy relationship, even to the point that they wrote a book together called Startup Life, which I really enjoy because it was a book about how entrepreneurs and their spouses can cohabitate and not drive each other crazy. Brad is also giving back to the community in many, many ways, in addition to um, co-founding Techstars, which has helped globally, it's helped uh, cities um, all over the world become startup hubs. In addition to that, giving back to the community, he's also currently on three boards. Um, he's the chair of the National Center for Women and Information Technology. He's the co-chair of Startup Colorado, and he's on the board of Path Forward. And I hope that at some point tonight we can talk a little bit about Path Forward. I really like their mission. He earned his undergrad and graduate degrees at MIT. We're not going to hold that against him. Um, he's also an avid art collector and a runner. He's done is, uh, we might get an update from Brad if this number's gone up. At my count, he has done 23 marathons, and his goal is to do 50, one in each state. I can tell you that when I started this speaker series years ago, Brad was on my list of speakers. I'm not exaggerating. Um, I've been really been looking forward to having Brad here. I can tell you that he had to twist his schedule around and really accommodate our schedule because it's, you know, we meet here at a certain time on a certain day, and we don't have a lot of flexibility. Uh, but Brad was happy to accommodate us. I am honored to share the stage with him. Let's welcome him to our class. You guys have a nice loud clap. That's nice. He's channeling Jimi Hendrix there. Um, I honestly almost did something different than that introduction. I felt like of all the people I've interviewed, you would be somebody I could say, this man needs no introduction and just start clapping. <laughs> <laughs> and, but unfortunately, a lot of people around the world watch this and they might be, who, who is this? Oh, I can Google him and find out. So speaking of knowing your background, um, people are very familiar with, with many aspects of your background, but what I'd like to do and part of what we try to do in the series is demystify success. 
because it's easy to watch this in a foreign country or, or, or at home or even sitting in the classroom and say, well, of course Brad is successful. You know, of course he is. But at one point, you were a student. You were sitting in a classroom much like this. Can you help draw that line between being that student without all the experience you have now and then how you got to being a venture capitalist, operator, et cetera? Sure. Um, I grew up in uh, Dallas, Texas. And the year before I went to college, so the summer uh, before I, I went to work for a company uh, called Petcom. It was a husband and wife software company. That was it. I was their first employee. Uh, this is in 1983. Mm. Uh, the IBM PC had recently come out, and uh, companies were starting to write uh, business software for the PC instead of for mini computers and mainframes. Um, uh, this couple's name were Helena and Chris Aves, and their company was Petcom. And I wrote uh, two pieces of software for the oil and gas industry that they published as part of their business. And I learned uh, really interesting lessons early on. Um, they paid me 10 bucks an hour. And I learned the easy lesson was if I worked 80 hours a week instead of 40, I'd make twice as much money. Yes, good math. That was pretty easy. Um, but they also paid me 5% of gross sales of the products I wrote for them. Mm. So sort of the idea was they didn't – the idea of equity in a company and having ownership of a company wasn't that popular in the early 1980s. But they, they wanted to give me some upside from what I did. And when I went to college, uh, I continued to work for them part-time when I was a freshman. And I would get royalty checks from, from the software and, you know – I get a thousand dollar check. I get a twenty five hundred dollar check one month. It's a lot of money for a young person. For Especially a freshman in college, it was great. Yep. I got a, a check for ten thousand dollars, a little bit over ten thousand. I remember the number ten thousand two hundred fifty dollars one month. <laughs> and I remember opening it and sort of saying, "Right, like, you know, I just <laughs> typo." <laughs> and I looked at it for a while, and I decided I lived in a fraternity. I decided we had a Chinese restaurant across the street called Mandarin, and I decided to take my entire fraternity to dinner uh, at Mandarin. <laughs> And so I took all, it was about, about 60 guys. We all went to dinner. We had this huge dinner, took over the whole restaurant. I paid for dinner. And at the end of dinner, I still had $8,000 left. <laughs> and and that, was a, that was a powerful sure. moment for me because sure. it was really the shift from understanding that, you know, I could get rewarded for my contribution specifically, yep. which, you know, I could draw a line from that to being a founder of a company. Um, their company went through uh, some good times. It grew a lot. Uh, over a couple of summers, I'd work full-time, again, 80 hours a week. I'd make a lot more than if I only worked my friends that were working 40 hours a week. Yep. Um, but then in my second summer, uh, the price of oil went from $30 a barrel to $10 a barrel during the summer, mm -hmm. and their phone stopped ringing. So this company that had grown a lot all of a sudden just fell off a cliff. Mm -hmm. And Chris and Helena were, were, uh, were, were fighters, so what they did was they, re they scaled the business way back, they repurposed the, the business and actually ended up taking much of the software that they'd written and, believe it or not, translating it into uh, software for uh, 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 CD record stores. That was when record stores were becoming CD stores and then video stores. We would now call that a pivot. It, pivot, yeah. And a CD is a little silver thing that you guys have never seen. Yeah, right? that's actually true. The music used to come on them, and after the music was on big things. Anyway, so that experience was one where I watched sort of the resiliency of the entrepreneurs. I then started um, doing consulting work, not just for them on a part-time basis, but for some other folks. And with a friend of mine from college, we started a software consulting company in 1987. 
Um, we did a lot of things right. We did some things wrong. One of the things we did wrong was we named the company Feld Technologies, uh, which I like to say at the beginning was named after my dad. Um, my partner's name, his last name was Jilk, and the problem was when he screwed up, they called for Mr. Feld, not for Mr. Jilk. So rule number one is don't name your company right, after yourself right, because right. you know when people get angry, you don't want them to call you necessarily. Um, that business was self-funded. So we built a business that... For the first couple of months, we lost money, and we had no money, so we realized pretty quickly that we had to actually make money or we weren't going to have a business for much longer. Right. And for seven years, we made money every month. Some months, it was a profit of a dollar. Some months, it was a profit of you know, $50,000 or $75,000, but we were very, very consistent uh, through the life of the business. Um, I was president of that company. We didn't have CEO titles back then. Uh, so I was president, and, and my partner Dave was vice president, and we sold it to a public company in 1993. Um, I worked for that public company for a couple of years. They grew very, very quickly, bought a bunch of companies. Um, I had some interesting, interesting roles there, but right after we got acquired, it was the end of 1993. In early 1994, I started making investments as an angel investor mm -hmm. um, in internet-related startup companies. Mm -hmm. This was at the very beginning of the commercial internet. So in 1994, you know, commercial internet was starting to happen. It had become legal yeah. to be able to have a, a commercial a domain on the internet that was used commercially. And I made, over the course of three years, about 40 uh, investments, uh, $25,000 to $50,000 investments, but very, very early in the life of these companies. And I helped start a number of them. So I, I had this experience where when I reflected on what I had done, and at some point looked back on my work as uh, a founder uh, and then back on my work as an angel investor, which then turned into institutional uh, VC investing, um, I was a good CEO, but I hated the job. And when I was a CEO, I didn't realize I disliked the job. Mm -hmm. But after I had not been a CEO for a while and was now investing in companies, I was able to reflect on it and realize that um, the attributes of being a CEO were not things I was... Uh, I was that interested in. I much more enjoyed the process of working for and helping, mm -hmm. working for a CEO and helping create a team, not as an employee, but as an investor and part owner of the right. business. Right. And that was pretty transformative in terms of, you know, the next 20 years of, of what I've done and how I've thought about how I do it. Yep. So you basically became a VC by doing it which if you didn't take that traditional path in the early 90s was probably about the only other way you could do it. Yeah, my, I mean, my becoming a VC was extremely random. So uh, my wife, Amy, would say that in the early to mid-90s, whenever the word VC or phrase VC would come up, and it was coming up more and more at the beginning of the Internet, I'd say, yeah. VCs are evil, stay away yeah. from VCs. Ultra capital. Right. My, my first company was self-funded. As an angel investor, I was starting to understand how to work with VCs mm -hmm. because they would typically come in after... Um, I was an investor, but it was it was not a, a peer relationship. They didn't feel like my people. Right. Um, you know, I didn't have necessarily their their background, um, and I always felt a little uncomfortable with the whole notion of a company needing to raise a lot of money. Then one day, I found that I was the guy that was investing in these companies, and I was the one with a lot of money saying, you need a lot of money to grow your business bigger. Right. So that I never really focused much on crossing over in that line. What I did realize, though, is if I look at the firm that I'm part of today that we started in 2007 versus the firm that I helped start in 1996-97 was when we raised our first fund, I was not deliberate about the partners I joined up with. Mm. It was a, a sort of random collection of people that were doing a bunch of stuff together at the same time, and then all of a sudden we ended up starting 
uh, a venture fund. Mm -hmm. In 2007, it was a very deliberate set of people. We had worked together since 2000 at this previous firm. It was a subset of that yep. group. Yep. People had different relationships with each other. And then we put a lot of effort into learning each other mm -hmm. and getting understanding how each other worked and getting good at working together. And the dynamic of what we did in 2007 and what we've created with Foundry Group is one where um, the five of us are extremely close, extremely close professionally, but also extremely close personally. Mm -hmm. And that was very, very different than the firm that I was involved in in the 90s, and also very different than most venture yeah. funds and right. the evolution of the dynamics yeah. of partnerships. I got asked earlier today, like, you know, what's the most important thing uh, in the context of a founding team? My, my co-founder in that first company, Dave, 30 years later, we're still best friends. Mm. And that doesn't mean that we didn't have lots of fucked up situations. I mean, right. we had lots of arguments, lots of struggles, lots yep. of challenges, lots of bad days, lots of you know, unresolved stuff, but we'd work through it. Mm -hmm. And that personal relationship as the foundation below it was really important to us. Yep. And that is equivalently true of my partners today. And when I think about that in the context of this arc, that's maybe one of the biggest things I've learned is that uh, we're all gonna die and it's easy to not think about it. Right. As you get older, you may think about it a little bit more because it happens around you a little bit more in different ways. Um, having people that you want to be with every day and you want to work with every day, even when you know you're gonna have conflict and struggle is so powerful. Yep. And it's not just blind loyalty, it's like working through those relationships. And it's true in a business, it's true in friendships, it's true in a marriage or a partnership, you know, that's a, a romantic partnership. Like figuring out how to do those things and investing energy in it's been very powerful. Yeah, I think it is powerful. And I think it's, it's not always the Hollywood portrayal of what business is all about. Um, and I think I often fight that Hollywood portrayal with my students and try to encourage them Go in, don't go into business with your, quote, friends, but make sure the people you go into business with, you're friends with. There's yep. a difference, yep. right? You don't look around and say, well, who are my friends? That's who I'm going to start a company yep. with. Um, but it really does make a difference. I can tell you that I shared uh, similar sentiments with my startups where we would, behind closed doors, we would go at it. We would disagree. We'd have all kinds of conflict. But because the, the friendship was the underlying foundation upon which we were working together, we were able to work through some really difficult times because we respected each other. That, self that, that, that mutual respect is really, really important. So this was, a, you know, Brad's an easy person to interview, but it was difficult from the standpoint of he's been interviewed so many times. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, can I ask questions that he hasn't been asked before, yet it not be so random and, 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 and wearisome to watch? So one question I want to ask Brad, not trying to trip him up, but is there a question that you've never been asked, but you wish you had, a bit, had been asked that question? And what answer would you give for that? And I'll give you as much time as you need. Watch, it'll, it'll take him 10 seconds. <laughs> well, uh, a question I've never been asked that um, I actually told a couple of stories at Tracker today around this question is how many times uh, in the context of entrepreneurship and, and the business you're involved in versus your personal life, mm -hmm. um, have you had to go in the bathroom and throw up uh, as a result of stress, <laughs> like stressful situation? Uh, and I can think of three. Wow. Um, can you share the details of yeah, one yeah. of them? Yeah, okay. yeah, I'll share the details of all three. If you need to run different. to the bathroom while he says yeah. this, just go. And none it. of them, by the way, had anything to do with the food I eat, and I've had that issue separately. 
Um, uh, the first one was at about four in the morning in my first company. Uh, we were cash flow positive business, so every month I had to pay payroll every two weeks, so we had to constantly be making enough money to cover our payroll. Yep. And we had a customer <clears throat> that was a biotech company that owed us uh, $50,000, which was, at the time, we were about $100,000 a month in revenue, so it was a big amount to be owed. And in addition to owing us the money, we had bought, they, that was money that they had bought hardware from us for. So it wasn't just services, but right. we'd actually spent money, yeah. probably another $30,000. So it was like a net $80,000 swing. And I woke up, uh, and it was near the end of the month, and I woke up with, you know, a couple of days before we had deal payroll, payroll. And it was like 4 o'clock in the morning. I was very anxious or whatever it was, you know, 3.57 in the morning. And I woke up wide awake realizing that I was completely screwed, like I wasn't going to make payroll. And, you know, I sort of laid there for a few minutes, and I remember just being incredibly nauseous. Um, I was, I was uh, my wife Amy and I were together at the time, and, and she's not a particularly good sleeper. If she gets woken up, she gets very frustrated, uh, mostly just yells at me. And so I was very quiet as I got out of bed and sort of wandered over to the bathroom in the dark and threw up whatever I had for dinner as I just sort of felt this sort of overwhelming stress. So that was one. Wow. Um, the second was a company I uh, co-founded, uh, which went public in 1999. Uh, it's called Interalliant. And at its peak, it was worth a little bit over $3 billion and, uh, in 2000. And 2002, went bankrupt. Mm. And... Um, it wasn't the bankruptcy that caused me to throw up. Like we, we, business had been failing and we had plenty of chance to sort of deal with that. But after we went bankrupt, we then went through this whole bankruptcy process and we were done. Like we thought we were finished. We'd sold off the business. We'd, you know, paid the creditors that were what they're going to get. The, share, the stockholders, me and my co-founders got nothing. And it was just like nightmare over. Yep. And I was at a meeting and with, with some, some other folks, including now one of my partners, Jason. And uh, he, he walked in the room and says, I need to talk to you. And I said, okay. And he had just received, it was back, uh, how many people here know what a fax is? Fax. Right? He had gotten a fax and he said, I, I just got a fax, I got to show you. And he showed me this fax and the fax literally said that I was being named in a lawsuit uh, for fraud in 2002 for $150 million. Wow. $150 million is more money than I ever even thought about. And by the way, we lost all our money. We hadn't made any money, right? right. So it was right. like, in addition to losing all our money, going bankrupt, the thing failed. Like, last time I checked, in the United States, if you fail, that's legal. Right. In 2002, they were hauling people to jail for fraud, right? WorldCom and Bernie yeah. Ebers, this may be ancient history for a lot of people. Enron. Yep. And I remember looking at this fax, and I remember just being like this, this sort of, you know, flop sweats and just unbelievable anxiety. Like, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And that precipitated another trip to the bathroom. <laughs> and then uh, the third uh, was uh, an experience I had with a company called Fitbit where we had a product problem uh, and we ended up doing a, a recall of, of one of the products. Uh, when we started realizing that we had a product problem, been a very, very successful product, yep. uh, product launch, and we started having nightly board meetings. And I, I will not go deeper into what the content was, but I remember getting off one of these board calls 
and, and just walking to the bathroom and throwing up. Like I just, you know, I knew what was coming and I wasn't going to fight it. <laughs> uh, See how glamorous it is? It's so glamorous. This is recent Fitbit. So it's not th- those are, I've not been asked those questions before. So this is the first right. time. Or I, this is now that I asked myself that question. Yeah, well, indirectly I asked you. The other, the other question, uh, which, is, which is lighter hearted, which I rarely get asked, which is always kind of curious, is, is uh, where, where, was, where I was born. Uh-huh. Um, because everybody thinks of, uh, you know, uh, I live in Boulder, Colorado today, right, 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 or Silicon right. Valley, or Boston, yeah. or I was in Boston for 12 years, New York, that sort of thing. Um, a couple of years ago, there was an article in Business Insider. Uh, they love to do these things called listicles where they have like page after page after page of number one, number two, number three. Yep. And they do that to get page views because you yep. have to click a button to see the next page. And it was the most famous entrepreneur born in each state. <laughs> and somebody sends me this and I'm the ma- most famous entrepreneur born in my state. In Texas? No. Nope. Oh. I was born in Arkansas. Arkansas. And I remember seeing this in Arkansas at the beginning. Have they right? heard of so, Sam Walton? Or? No, that was my first response. I'm like, is this guy named Sam Walton? <laughs> like, really? That's the best you could do? Wow. So, anyway. Very good. All right, I'm going to go to student question after this. Um, so, Startup Communities, uh, you know, I mentioned that book. Uh, I, I've used it in Santa Barbara. By the way, you guys aren't laughing very much. <laughs> <laughs> it's check. me, not you. Just check it. <laughs> so, I've used the book and saying, actually, some of the community folks in here have heard me lead a discussion of our community based on that rubric. Um, what, so I have a kind of a two-part two question. What was the most delightful thing that came out of that book? And you've traveled now. This book's been out for a few years. You've traveled. What, what would you change about that book if you rewrote it yeah. or if you guys do a new edition? I, and I will do not a new edition, but I'll do um, Startup Communities uh, 2. I don't know if anybody here is a Sharknado fan, but... If you like Sharknado, I hope it'll be like Sharknado 2 was to Sharknado, the original. It'll reboot. The and by the way, Mark Cuban was really awesome in Sharknado 3 as the president. So he was running for president. I'd vote for him. Um, so when you write a book, at least for me, sorry, when, when, I, when I've written a book, you, you always are hopeful that there will be something enduring that comes out of the book. And books are hard to write. And, yep. You know, it's it's like any other product development process. It's a lot of a lot of work that doesn't have a clear payoff at the end. In the case of startup communities, the most rewarding part of it for me is literally the idea that the phrase startup communities has become iconic. Mm-hmm. So when the book came out, nobody had ever used the phrase startup communities before. Um, the thing that we now call startup communities were called something else. Um, innovation clusters, ecosystem. entrepreneurial ecosystems. And in fact, the subtitle had the phrase entrepreneurial ecosystem in it because that was the thing that people could tie to. Mm. Um, and I just thought it was very inaccessible, very sort of academic feeling. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it didn't portray the goal, which was to build a community. Mm-hmm. So one of the most rewarding things about that book has been um, that sort of notion and the concept uh, behind what what you need to do to build a startup community anywhere has taken root. Um, I have a deeply held belief that you can build a startup community in any city that's at least 100,000 people. And we've seen that be built out over the last four or five years around the world, and that's been, been super satisfying. Um, there's a lot of things I would have changed in the book. Two that are easy to grab onto is, one, I separated the world into two categories, uh, leaders and feeders. And I said the leaders have to be the entrepreneurs. So in a startup community, if you want a vibrant, healthy, long-term startup community, 
the entrepreneurs have to be leaders. Everybody else is a feeder. So university, government, nonprofits, venture capitalists, lawyers, big companies. What I didn't do a good job of was making, I, I picked the wrong words. I should have used like apple and papaya, right? What happened was people viewed uh, it as one up, one down, or, mm. or how somehow yeah, feeders were pejorative, yeah. right? Leaders were more important, feeders were less important. Equally important, different roles. Got it. So I didn't, I, I explained that, but I didn't do a good job, so people hung on to the wrong thing. Um, another thing that uh, I've learned a lot about, in the book, uh, there's a section on what should government do, mm-hmm. and I basically punted. I said, government should just do nothing, or they should just get out of the way, just do no harm. Yep. And, um, and, and some of that came from my own experience in Boulder, where the startup community runs in a parallel universe to our local government. Same here. Yeah, I mean, local government, as far as, they, they, it doesn't mean anything. In fact, you know, today in Boulder, um, you know, there's been so much vibrancy around startups and new company creation, which has been incredibly healthy for the city, but there's a whole contingent of people who are like, all these new people are ruining our city, right? right? And, you know, which is kind of natural yep. dynamics of a growing city. You know, you remind the 70-year-olds that they've been in Boulder for 50 years, and when they came to Boulder when they were 20 and 25 yep. and 30, it's like, we're going to change this place. Yep. They're 70. They're going to die soon. They should give it to the 20-year-olds. <laughs> like, the 20-year-olds and the 25-year-olds, they're the future, not the right. 70-year-olds. Right. So let go of that, right? You know, you have that stress, in a, you know, not just in Boulder, but in lots of places in the sure. U.S. Um, I'm 50, so I straddle those two. I get to be right in between that, that argument. Um, but I, I, I punted. I didn't do a particularly good job in our, of, of going deep on what government, local, state, and federal could do to be helpful. And there are definitely things that government can do. So in, um, in uh, Sharknado 2, um, uh, I'll, pl- I'll do some work on that section. Good. And I will read that section because we need that help here. So we'll take the first uh, student's question. Check. Okay. <laughs> Once Mark. again, thanks for coming out again tonight, Brad. Um, my question was, do you handle marketing operations in a nonprofit organization similar to how you would in a for-profit organization? And uh, what tactics, motivations, and persuasions do you employ to garner support and revenue for the life of a nonprofit organization when you have no good or service to pay directly in return to the customers? That's a long question. <laughs> um, <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> no, it's it's uh, it's an interesting question though. So um, there are lots of things about a for-profit and a non-profit that are similar, and lots of things that are different. Um, the the thing that is important about a non-profit in the context of what you're doing is that there are really two ways that you get paid for what you're doing. One is you could have earned revenue, so services that you're providing where you get paid for those. Activities, and then the other is that you have grant revenue or unearned revenue. In a for-profit, you don't have that second, right? You don't get revenue from uh, philanthropies that want to support your mission. Um, you get customer revenue, earned revenue from customers buying your product. In a nonprofit, you have people buying whatever your service is. Uh, I think that the the miss that so many nonprofits have, and, and a thing nonprofits don't do as well as for-profits is they don't get focused on packaging up what they're selling for that earned revenue piece. They, try, they rely on their mission nature. You know, we're going to solve this problem, and here's some things you can pay us for to do, or we're doing these things for you 
to do to solve this problem versus focusing more on packaging up those services so that people say, oh, I don't care whether you're a for-profit or non-profit, I want some of that, mm-hmm. and I'm willing to pay for some of that. So I think that's a place where non-profits could, could be a lot better. On the for-profit side, I think that the really great companies have a very clear sense of mission in the same way that a successful nonprofit has to have a sense of mission to be successful. I think way too many companies don't have a sense of mission. Now, I don't mean a vision and mission statement. Right? I, have a, I mean a purpose to exist. Why, why are we here and why are we doing what we're doing? And, and, and whether you're a for-profit or nonprofit, the clearer focus that is, the easier everything else is. I don't know if that answered the question, but that's a question. Perfect, that's a question I felt like answering. <laughs> uh, my question to you is: Many of your blog posts talk about living by the give before you get approach. How has this outlook changed the way you interact with other entrepreneurs? And how would you recommend a young entrepreneur start exercising this principle, even though they may not have much to give? Yeah. So the the next book I'm coming out with, which will come out in the fall of 2017, is called Give First. And give first is now the phrase I'm using for give before you get, which I used for the first time in startup communities to describe how to engage with your startup community. What I mean by give first is that uh, you enter into a relationship non-transactionally. You're willing to put energy into something without knowing what you're going to get back. It's not altruism. You expect to get something back. You just don't know when, from whom, over what time frame, and what consideration. So if you think about it in the context of a startup community, if you can get everybody in Santa Barbara putting energy into the Santa Barbara startup community without defining what they're going to get back, lots of stuff starts happening. And in my experience over 30 years of being in business, if you operate that way, whether it's in the startup community or in a company or in the ecosystem, whatever you're doing, you end up getting back 10 times or more what you've put in. You just don't know where it's going to come from. I think in business, there's historically this notion that the best way to engage with somebody is say, you know what, I'll help you if you give me this. Mm. Right? Now, the other extreme, by the way, is I've definitely had people say, oh, you're a venture capitalist. Why don't you give me $5 million bucks and I'll give you back something at the end when you know, I figure out what, it, it's, you know, what happens. I, no, no, there's transactions. There's, I'm not saying you should eliminate transactions. Putting energy in at the beginning, getting to know people, invest in others and invest in other systems and be willing to take that risk. I think that's magic in terms of how you can operate your life. The, the young entrepreneur or young person in college trying to get into entrepreneurial context, the example of it is um, put energy into a company for free. Now you say, well, that's great, but I've got to eat. Okay, you got to eat, but maybe you're in a position where you can eat and you can work on something without having to get paid for it today. But what you're doing by putting the energy in today, whether it's an open source project or whether it's a company that you really care about their product or it's just showing up and saying, hey, you know, I'm here. I'm going to do stuff for you guys. And when you decide that I'm actually doing something useful for you, just put me to work. I'll do whatever. And when you decide that I'm being useful, just you pay me when you decide I'm being useful. Like you're in a position where you can take a chance like that. Mm-hmm earlier in your career. Do it in a way that's self-interested. So the give before you get or give first idea is, again, it's not altruistic. You should be doing things in your own self-interest. But it doesn't have to be transactionally defined. Yep. Yep. And I can tell you guys, you know, Brad and I sort of met, in quotes, online, 
Brad helped me several times. Um, I'm still trying to figure out a way I can help Brad, but but he he was you know didn't really know me at all and would either promote a blog post or make an introduction for me or whatever. And I can tell you, I can only imagine how many emails he gets. Very responsive on email. It's a great model for you guys to aspire to, right? This idea that you know John in Santa Barbara, who the hell is this guy? I don't really know. Not taking that approach, but saying, hey, if I can help him, I'm going to try to give this guy a hand. And this has been going on for a while. And and here's the, uh, I'll I'll put a wrapper around it. You said something that's really important. John says, I don't know what I can do or what I have done to be helpful. I don't either, but that doesn't matter. Right. Right. I'm putting energy into the system. I don't expect it to come back from John. I expect it to come back from the system somewhere. Right. If it comes back from John, awesome. But if it comes back from you or comes back from somebody else in this room, great. Maybe tracker. Right. I... This is that was the path I was going to take, right? You were they were your students, um, you know. They might have never found their way to me except for you. I so far all the money's gone to them, not to me. <laughs> Change that, Chris. <laughs> Christian, but I'm patient and calm um, and optimistic and and very patient, um, and you know. I expect to come back to me. By the way, if, if money never comes back to me, the experience that I'm having is a great experience. Right? So it's not that it has to be a financial, tangible outcome that right. comes back right. either. Right. And just letting yourself be comfortable in that context, especially younger in your life, I think gives you more range of freedom to explore. And for me, when I th- think back to what I was doing in my early 20s, um, I was fortunate in that my father and mother, my mom's an artist, my dad's a doctor. My father, when I was 10, I was incredibly nervous because I hated going to the hospital with him. He would do rounds. I hated the hospital. Mm. I didn't like the lights. I don't like fluorescent lights. I didn't like the noise. I don't like the smells. Yep. I don't like the beeping. I don't like sick people. I don't like dirt. Like everything about a hospital to me when I was 10 years old was like, get me to out of here. My, hey, Brad, do you want to come on rounds with me? Okay, I'll come on rounds with you. And I walk into his study. He has a little study at our house, and he would do his charts at the end of the day and, and do stuff, call his patients, back when you called patients on the phone. And I was very, very anxious. I said, Dad, I don't really want to be a doctor. And he looked at me. He said, Brad, and my grandpa was, was named Jack. His father was named Jack. He said, um, Brad, when Grandpa Jack... Uh, when I was about your age, I went into Grandpa Jack's office and I said, uh, Dad, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And he said to me, Stanley, my dad's name is Stanley, Stanley, you can be anything you want as long as you're a doctor. <laughs> and my dad looked at me and he said, Brad, you can be anything you want. And at 10, that was transformative mm-hmm. for me. Right? It's like one of those moments that yep. sticks with me because right. it gave me this sense of, you know, I can explore. Take advantage of that when you're young. Absolutely. I'm going to ask you a, question, a couple of questions about books, and then I'll get back to you. So you're an avid reader. I love that you put your library basically online. Yep. People can follow what you read. So you and I share an affinity for Philip K. Dick. Yeah. PKD, right? PKD. So do you feel that, that by reading about science fiction, and I know there's other science fiction that you're a fan of, by reading about science fiction, does that, does that inform you as an investor, yeah. or is it just you just want to read because it's, it's fun? Anybody in here PKD fans? A couple of people. So, so this guy wrote about a book a month, yeah. and he was, he was completely stoned all the time. I mean, he was a huge, huge user of hallucinogens yep. well before they were trendy. And you can, <laughs> you, you can totally tell. 
some of the stuff he wrote is so awesome. He wrote these books in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, or 60s, 70s. Some of the books, when he writes about what's going to happen in like 2000, 2010, like he just nails it. And then other stuff is so wrong with the benefit of time. So I've always loved to read three types of science fiction as an investor. I like to read books like PKD or Isaac Asimov, Mm -hmm. stuff written in the 50s and 60s and 70s about roughly current time. Mm -hmm. Because you sort of go back in time 50-ish years, 30, 40, 50 years, and you try to wind forward what they got right and what they got wrong as a way of then starting today and looking forward 30, 40, 50 years and thinking about what we have right from today and what we have so totally wrong. Um, if, if PKD's future was true, we would be able to get to Europe in two minutes by air travel and we would store things on audio tape, right? Aux tape for those of you that remember. Um, if you want a book that will blow your mind about how prescient somebody is at looking 75 years in the future, Read I, Robot by Isaac Asimov, the one he wrote in the 1950s. Not the movie, not the right, William right. Smith, Will Smith thing, which is kind of funny, but totally not the book. Read the book. It is unbelievable to read this book and see how much this guy got right mm-hmm. about what was going to happen 75 years. He got a bunch of stuff wrong, but that vector is helpful. So that's kind of one thing. Thing number two is I love to read what I call near-term science fiction. So science fiction written kind of plus five or ten years. So written today with a five or ten year out view. So um, a guy named William Hurtling uh, has written a bunch of books like this. Daniel Suarez has written a bunch of books like this. A friend uh, who, who has written now, I think, four books. Elliot Pepper has written a bunch of books like this. I mean, you basically are living in today but plus five or ten years. And in fact, um, Daniel Suarez's first book, Damon, became very popular at Google. How many people here uh, have played Pokemon Go? Don't lie. Okay. So that book is basically the stimuli um, for the Google project that then became Nanantic, which is the company that did Pokemon Go. So, like, that's, you know, and that's in about a five or seven or eight year time period. Mm -hmm. Then I like to read stuff that's like 50 years in the future from today. Same phenomena. So these three things are very different for me. I don't try to emulate any of them. I read a lot of them because I'm trying to synthesize. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very happy to throw it away. If you said, which book did you read that thing? And I say, I don't remember. Like, it's just, it all gets blurry, yep. but it's this continual stimuli. The other stimuli that I find really useful is history from a lot of years ago. Um, you know, read a Benjamin Franklin biography, read a John Adams biography, uh, read a Thomas Jefferson biography. It'll calm you down about how up our current political system is. It really will. Like, you know, the idea that um, uh, uh, mostly men were trying to kill their neighbor to take over their backyard is not a new idea for human beings. Right. Right? So if you go back far enough, you get a sense of, yeah, I mean, things are different in terms of how they get implemented, but the basic construct is no different. And you can then calibrate your value system around it. Don't do what I did. So when I was an operator, I would pride myself on working every minute on the plane, and I didn't have time for books, and, and it's just a ridiculous way. And finally, one day, I was walking down the aisle of a plane on a late flight, and I was the only one working on the entire plane. People were reading, watching movies, playing solitaire, doing things that normal people do, and I was doing my expense report or something ridiculous like that. And it was that day I said, forget it. I'm, read- I'm going back to reading. 
I think it's 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 it is it, nurse, it nurtures something in your soul, and I think it can open up your eyes to um, you know the world around you, both historically and the future. And I made that I kind of had that epiphany was probably in my mid thirties. You know, I probably had a ten year period where I just said, I don't have time to read. I'm too important, and I'm an entrepreneur, and all these other crazy ridiculous things. So I thought it was inspiring when I first saw your library and all the things yeah. you're reading and. You you don't just I mean, you don't just make time for those things those those things are oh, important. It's it's great joy in my life. Yeah. My yeah. my wife Amy and I our our idea of a good time in our house we have two couches and our idea our idea of a really good time is each of us laying on a different couch, <laughs> uh, reading a book with you know music on. Yep. Um, I uh, I I encourage um, reading as a as a thing of joy rather than a thing of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, a trap uh, that we fall into, that many people fall into, is you feel like you have to read all the business books. Yep. Or you know, you go to school and and you're you know you you go through this sort of process of reading that's studying. How many of you feel totally comfortable on page thirty-seven when you're like, eh, I'm not that into this book, putting the book down? Get comfortable with that idea. How many of you are really comfortable when you're like on page seventy-five of a book? And it's really just you're not getting much out of it turning the pages and just like searching for something. Or if you're on a Kindle, realizing that you're going like this on every page, which you can't possibly read that fast. Get comfortable with that. You don't have to read every word. You don't have to remember it. You're having the experience. Yep. And the more of that that you're comfortable with, I think it's, it's so different than sitting and passively watching a yep. movie. I like to watch movies too, but it's such a different experience because it engages your brain in a very different way. Yep, totally agree. We'll take the next student's question. So as an investor in Fitbit, where do you believe the fitness tracking industry will go? And how do you think the rise in uh, human-integrated technology will affect the industry? So Fitbit, when we invested, it was uh, we have a theme we call human-computer um, interface, HCI. And our belief is that the way that humans and computers will interact with each other over the next 30 years will be as profoundly different as it was 30 years ago. Uh, Sorry, human-computer interaction, I said interface. Um, One of the sub-ideas in that for us is this notion of human instrumentation and the separation between a biological creature and a machine. And part of it is that, like, in the same way that machines can measure themselves, we want to measure ourselves. And we measure ourselves in very crude ways today, right? We get on a scale. Um, we go to the doctor, and they take blood, and they look at stuff. And I, I think in 10 years we'll have, um, and it, maybe it's 20 years, I don't know, the idea that you will ever have to w- take blood out of your system in a meaningful way to do a test uh, makes no sense to me, right? The idea that you'll have to count calories makes no sense to me. The idea that the separation between human and machine and the measurement system and the feedback loop will be merged together and it'll be in, in your physical sense. So Fitbit for us was human instrumentation version 0.1. Right? It was a very raw, very simplistic way of all of a sudden getting data about things, you know, steps, weight, mm-hmm. calories, different things, now heart rate, having that data collected in real time, stored you know, in the cloud, available to you over a long period of time, aggregated in a way that you could get broad-based statistics about all kinds of different things based on individual demographics. Um, When we invested, the category of wearables didn't exist. 
Right, so it wasn't that it was an obvious thing to invest in because there was going to be this category of devices that you wear that measure stuff. It was, you know, mostly people are like, why would you ever invest in a digital pedometer? Right, who gives a shit about that? No one's ever going to buy that. Right, so that's, that's where it started. But we had that premise. If you look at an investment we made relatively recently, it's a company called NEMA. Um, how many of you have either have a gluten sensitivity or know somebody that has a gluten sensitivity? Is that a, is that a fad? Here you go into the restaurant and say, I need my... I need gluten-free bread, or I need gluten-free pasta, which makes no sense. Um, I, I actually ask for extra gluten on my food. By, in Boulder, like it's every, like menus, like would you like the gluten-free menu or the regular menu? I'd like the extra gluten menu. Um, but there's a, you know, there's a real disease called celiac disease. There's about 3 million people in the U.S. that have celiac disease. There's about 30 million people in the U.S. that have a gluten sensitivity, whether it's real or perceived. Um, that's a lot of people. Uh, NEMA has a sensor that's a portable sensor. You take it with you. It's a consumer product. And you put a little food in it, and it lights up with a happy face or a frowny face. If it's got gluten in it, it's got a frowny face. And um, the chemistry is disposable. And they're working on chemistry for dairy. Plenty of people here probably have a lactate intolerance. Um, Wine, sulfates, peanut, peanut allergy. And the idea is we still have to have a separate physical device in chemistry you can imagine that 10 years from now, we'll have something that can actually filter that stuff out of our system. So that was the premise for that type of an investment. And when we think about investing as a firm, we try to pick these areas like HCI that are broad horizontal themes that we think will have impact over a very long period of time. And then we look for um, areas where we have deep understanding of that give you one more example of it. That's not human instrumentation, but the way that humans and machines interact with each other. How many of you like music? How many of you um, can sense the difference between listening to headphones and you know, having it really loud and good headphones? I don't know what your good headphones. What's good? Are the Beats headphones any good for? Well, what are the cool headphones? There must be something cooler than Beats now. Bose, okay, Bose are better. All right, Bose headphones versus being in a rock concert, a real concert. Real concert, like with the vibrations and with the energy and with, like, it's a different kind of dynamic, right? Or being in a, a dance club that's, you know, everything's turned up to way too loud <laughs> and everything's vibrating. Totally different feeling. Now, could you imagine if you had your Bose headphones on and you had bass, uh, you had subwoofers in your shoes and all of a sudden your shoes were that same sort of vibration that put vibration through your whole system that was synchronized to the music? We've invested in a company that's making subwoofers for your shoes, right? I mean, it's, again, the way we're interacting with, these computer, with this technology is connecting ourselves physically with it in a more profound way. Nice. That's very cool. Well, I have a student question that I want to ask, so apologies if it was one of yours, but I want to make sure we get to it. So you're, you're working um, with NCIIT. Um, we all know that there's, women are underrepresented in tech, for sure. What are some specific things you guys are doing as an organization? And do you have any words of advice for the women in this audience and beyond that are watching it, uh, you know, when they, yeah. they, they had this desire to get into tech? So NCWID is a National Center for Women in Information Technology. It started 12 years ago. I'm chair. Uh, Lucy Sanders, who's the CEO, was the CTO at a company called Avaya Labs, which was a spinoff, sure. multiple spinoff from AT&T. And when she retired, um, she had been a very, very successful woman in technology, but uh, this was about a decade, well, 12 years ago. She decided that 
um, there was only about 10, 15% of people that were engineers and software engineers were, were women. Mm -hmm. And she created this organization with a mission of getting more women and girls involved in computer science and information technology, um, not from a gender parity perspective, for, but from an innovation and product development perspective. The idea that men were designing the products mm -hmm. from her frame of reference was idiotic. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of uh, cross-gender team frankly, diverse teams, teams with diversity of thought, diversity of experience, right. generate much better products. So we've been, we've been at this for a long time. Um, a couple of specific ideas that come out of it. One, um, I'm curious, how many of you are familiar with the phrase unconscious bias? Good, that's a big number. So the phrase unconscious bias is not a new idea, but it's a, a relatively new idea in terms of being popular uh, around um, gender and tech uh, but lots of other issues as well. The, I scared these two guys away. Don't tell my mom you're leaving early. No, it's okay. Thanks for coming. It's cool. Thanks for coming. Um, the, um, uh, the issue of unconscious bias is we all have biases. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, what your gender is, what your ethnicity is, what your sexual preference is. You know, what you're, where you grew up. Your intentions. What your intentions. We all have unconscious biases. Yep. Understanding your unconscious biases and working to eliminate them in the context of specific things is very powerful. Gender and computer science and product development is one of those areas. Mm -hmm. And it's not just that men have unconscious bias in that context, but women do as well. And understanding how to deal with that is very powerful. By the way, it's a life skill, not just a right. computer science skill. But that's a big one. And if you hear the phrase unconscious bias, if you have an opportunity ever to do unconscious bias training, it's really, really useful because it's remarkable the biases that we have wired into ourselves that we're not aware of. That's why they're unconscious. Right. Until you're put in a situation where all of a sudden you realize, wow, that's interesting. So that's, that's one. Two... <clears throat> And I don't know what the computer science uh, course, entry-level computer science courses are here, but one of the big things we've learned is that women, uh, young women, when they go into college, the very first computer science class they take is super important. Mm. And many times you'll be enthusiastic about computer science. You'll go into the computer science class. The boys in the class, of which often you know, outnumber the women two to one, three to one, four to one, um, think that they know something about programming and computer science because they've been futzing around with their computers right. since they were 12. The, the, the girls have been playing with their computers since they were 12 too, but they don't bring this sort of right. notion that they have a clue to the class. And immediately they feel uncomfortable with the class. And so the way that that first computer science class is taught for many young women is it puts, puts you in a position where you're very uncomfortable. Um, it's also a problem from a guy's perspective because the guys feel like that's the way they are one up on everybody else. Mm. The teacher matters here. Yeah. And there's a handful of very, very good training now. There's a couple of examples. A woman, I'm not going to remember her name, who's a teacher at uh, Harvey Mudd. Um, it's a great way that she teaches a first year, first year, first computer science class. But things like that in the class, also in the organization. 
how you function in the context of, okay, I've just joined this organization. Right. I'm uh, a woman on a team that's a mostly male team. How does that team function with me? Mm-hmm. Um, those kinds of dynamics in, in computer science are very powerful. I could give you, you know, 10 or 15 more specific things like this. If you're interested, I encourage you to go to ncwit.org um, uh, or reach out to me, bradatfeld.com, and I'll hook you up with the organization. The, the one I'll leave you with is that men play a very powerful part in this as well, and there's a phrase that, that we use in NCWIT called male advocate. And the idea of a male advocate is that in an organization, as a male, you have an opportunity to be an advocate for the women in that organization, again, this is in the context of computer science, mm-hmm. so that you generate more diversity uh, around the teams in the organization. Yep. Again, very specific things that you can do that are advocacy-related versus power or control-related. Yep. Good. Great mission. Take the next student's question. Uh, hello. Uh, when beginning a startup, uh, it can take many years and much effort for a company to become successful. When should we accept failure and when should we transcend it? Um, transcending it, I don't know. Uh, again, we're all going to die, so that's a toughie. Um, uh, the day that you should decide to call it quits is the day you wake up and you hate what you're doing and don't want to do it anymore. Right? The day you want to quit the thing you're doing. Yep. You shouldn't decide that day. You should give it another day and see if you wake up feeling different the next day. But if you find yourself really hating what you're doing, hating, not disliking it, not struggling with it, not having a hard time, you know, not feeling inadequate, hating it, that's when you should call it quits. There's like a very clear emotional thread. By the way, um, uh, many entrepreneurs are very bad at viewing company creation as a multi-turn, multi-company experience. You think about it as I'm starting this company. The great entrepreneurs started a company, and at the end of their life, they were still running that company. And that's we hear a couple of examples like that, but most great entrepreneurs have multiple failures on the way to that success. And many entrepreneurs have a success and then a failure and then another success. Or a success and a failure and a failure and a success. And so this idea that you're playing multiple companies over your entrepreneurial arc is a useful construct. I think people hang on to this notion that this is the only only shot I'm ever going to get. Those are great words to end on. Thank you so much, Brad. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.